This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. So over the years, one of the questions that pops up regularly in my classroom is the question of how various world religions see sexuality, sexual orientation, and LGBTQ people. I don't discourage these questions because I see these inquiries of American teenagers to be vitally important to understanding religion and society. So who among us can say we don't have more to learn when it comes to questions about the intersection between sex, sexuality, and religion? I would argue that percentage of people who don't need to learn more about these issues is small. Modern religion seems to have strong opinions on any topic related to sexuality, and many of us likely have our own preconceived notions of what exactly those opinions are. Oftentimes, our opinions are derived from our own experiences in various religious institutions. Perhaps there are some stereotypes in our views, perhaps some hearsay, and perhaps some hard truths that are derived from personal lived experience. So, that said, I was looking at the University of Missouri Religious Studies Department website recently, and I came across a flyer whose event was literally happening as I read the flyer. Like, that exact second. I was crushed. Here's why. The headline on the flyer read, Queer Nuns, Serious Parody, and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. The lecturer was Dr. Melissa Wilcox of the University of California, Riverside. The fact that Dr. Wilcox was standing five miles away from my job at that exact second and was speaking right then and knowing that I was unable to attend the event, I fired off an email inviting her to speak with me on the podcast. The result was a splendid fast-paced, and far-reaching conversation with lots and lots of recommendations for you to check out. There are some potentially stereotype-busting thoughts and ideas based on her research in the fields of feminist and queer studies in intersection with religious studies and religion. She has many books out, including the forthcoming 2018 New York University Press volume, Queer Nuns, Religion, Activism, and Serious Parody, about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. If you don't know who they are, it's worth it to look them up. Lastly, there's a small sound issue in the recording, and I'm aware of it. It's a buzzing, and it's slightly worse near the start of the conversation, so if you stick it out, the reward is high. The conversation sounds slightly better on speakers than on headphones, so if you could listen on a stereo while cooking dinner or doing some work around the house, that might make it a touch more enjoyable. But overall, I loved this conversation, and I really think that you should check it out. There is no other episode like this one on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with Dr. Wilcox. So without further delay, Dr. Melissa Wilcox of the University of California, Riverside.
Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. I'm here today with Dr. Melissa Wilcox. Dr. Wilcox, thanks for coming on the Classical Ideas Podcast. My pleasure to be here. So I'm curious if you can go ahead and introduce yourself and your scholarly interests to the audience. Sure. My name is Melissa Wilcox. I am a professor in the Religious Studies Department at UC Riverside. My official training in religious studies is as an Americanist, but my specialty is gender and sexuality studies in religion, and particularly queer studies in religion. Fantastic. And that's how I came to find you. I know that you were doing some work recently at the University of Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what did you What did you come to town for? So I gave a talk on the research that I've really just wrapped up, have a book just coming out in a few months on the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Fantastic. Um, So how did you come to be academically interested in the intersections between queer studies and religion? So I'm pretty unusual among religious studies scholars, among actually scholars in general, in that I learned queer theory and feminist theory through taking religious studies classes. So I'm a product of the distribution requirement system. I was a biology major as an undergrad, did mostly molecular biology and some ecology, and I was heading for vet school. And I took a class that fulfilled a requirement, fit in my schedule, looked marginally interesting, and it was on the early history of Christianity, and it completely blew my mind. So after that, every elective I had, I took religious studies courses, and it started with courses like Women in the Ancient World, and then feminist readings of the Hebrew Bible, and I started learning that um, feminist Jews and Christians have found ways to reclaim texts that I thought were hopelessly patriarchal when I was a 19-year-old college student. And from there, I started studying with someone who was studying um, Hellenistic Judaism, so Judaism in the in the early part of the Common Era, um, through the lens of queer theory, which was brand new at the time. It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't usual at that time in religious studies to be learning your feminist theory and your queer theory in the field. What stands out to you the most from that that formative time period in your life when you realize that there was this intersection, like what really jumps out? What are some of the biggest lessons that stood out to you from those early days of studying this topic? Well, so I was a liberal kid from the Berkeley Hills and it was the late eighties, early nineties and the religious right was on the rise. So my understanding of religion was pretty much what, um, a lot of, college students on the more liberal side of the spectrum understand it to be. They see it as this negative, oppressive thing. And to encounter not only different readings of the texts, texts that I never knew existed, um, but also ways that contemporary people were making them um, exciting and new and seeing different possibilities in the texts than the ones that I was hearing people talk about on the news. I think the other thing that, the first thing that really blew my mind was that the Christianity that I knew as a kid that had been raised sort of marginally Protestant um, would have been completely different if 1800 years earlier, a different set of books had been burned, a different set of people had been exiled, a different set of people had been in power, 
that was what really completely blew me out of the water because I saw religion as just a thing that was there that existed that was unchanging and permanent and the idea that it could shift and change that it could have so many different meanings to different people all at the same time um, was really really new one of the things that stands out to me about what you just said is that in my own class, whenever we're reading something or talking about a topic and my students ask me a question, so often the answer is, it depends. And yes. that, that really stands out about interpretation and how uh, a certain person comes at a text from you know, a certain angle and how that can impact such huge portions of society, as you just mentioned with the, uh, the 80s and the rise of the religious right. And it's so much about interpretation, isn't it? It absolutely is, and part of what fascinates me, I'm really not interested in the questions of which interpretation is the right one. I'm interested in questions about why do people find different inter interpretations attractive? Why do they find them persuasive? Um, and some of that is logic-based, and certainly I'm familiar, pretty conversant actually, with the different arguments for how different texts should be interpreted or translated. but a lot of it also has to do with much more intangible stuff. Cool. So you occupy a space um, that I've been digging into a little bit recently of uh, feminist and or queer religious studies. So can you define feminist and or queer religious studies for the listener? The simplest definition is simply to say that it's what happens when you take feminist studies and or queer studies and put it together with religious studies. But I should probably say a little bit more than that. Feminist studies can be broadly defined as an academic field that is interested in the pursuit of justice, specifically justice around gender, but most feminist studies today understands gender as being fundamentally intersectional, so you can't think about gender without also thinking about how race affects it, how it affects race, and you could say the same thing for class, ability, sexuality, nationality, colonialism, we could go on. Queer Studies thinks in particular about relationships of power, privilege, justice, but also things like representation and, and symbolism around issues of sexuality. And increasingly we're seeing, we have seen over the past few decades, the development of transgender studies as an important connector between feminist studies, queer studies, and other forms of um, academic pursuit as well. So the reason I wanted to invite you on this show is because uh, something I hope to accomplish more and more is to broaden people's perspectives on religion and expand what they think that religion has to be. So you have a new book coming out called Queer Nuns. When does it come out? Uh, it's due out sometime this spring, probably April or May of 2018. Fantastic. And so in also in a recent blog post, um, you made a note that really, really resonated with me. And it you said that you hope to raise more questions than answers. So ta-da, here comes a question. <laughs> you said you consider part of your job to be a performative messing about with religion that challenges assumptions and edicts about what religion is who belongs and who gets to decide such things. And I know that I changed your wording on that quote slightly, um, but I adored the quote and I'm hoping that you can elaborate on that for the listener. Yeah, absolutely. So 
There are a number of religious studies scholars now. If people are curious, one is named Talal Assad. He's an anthropologist. Another is a sociologist of religion, whom I like very much by the name of Meredith McGuire. And there are others, Tomoko Masuzawa, uh, who's a historian, um, that have all pointed to the fact that the very idea that there is this thing called religion that all human beings do and that can be compared kind of almost on a chart that you could come up with different facets of religion and then go around the world and across history and fill in the appropriate facet that fits each category for everything that you encounter. That very idea is only a few hundred years old. It was invented by some Europeans who were worried about the fact that different European Christians kept on killing each other over land, over politics, but also over religion. And the idea ended up being a really important source of excuses for colonialism. Um, it's ended up being, certainly, it, I think you could argue it has done some good in the world, but it's also ended up giving us some very restricted ideas about what religion is. And whether you think religion is a really good thing, and therefore you define it as, as all of the things that you treasure, but that means that anybody that does something that doesn't fall within what you treasure doesn't get to count as religious, or whether you consider religion a bad thing and it's everything that you don't like, and then certainly everybody that does stuff you don't like falls outside, but anybody that does stuff you do doesn't fall inside that. All of that is, is limiting how we understand other people's engagement with whether you call it the ultimate, the world beyond the human, um, the broader world that we don't necessarily perceive or understand. See, we even struggle to say what exactly that thing is. But at the same time, even in religious studies, we still have some ideas, even as we argue over whether you can define religion, what it's defined as, we still have ideas about what counts and what doesn't. And definitely outside of religious studies, we do. So when I come into my classrooms and I say, well, if you look at it from just the way things work in society, science is like religion. Maybe science is religion. My students will go along with me through science is like religion and say, oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's a very wide worldview. It affects a lot of how we understand reality, how we interpret what we engage with. But when I say science is religion, that raises a lot of questions. On the other side of things, you can say some people's religion is not really accepted or understood widely as religion. And that's where I think also we get into trouble. So what is the I want to dive into your work a little bit. What is the central thesis for your upcoming book, Queer Nuns from NYU Press? So I'm trying to argue that there's a form of protest that I'm calling serious parody that is a little bit different from what we're more familiar with in terms of parody-based or parodic protest. Parodic protest includes taking a powerful religious institution or even just a, as a counter-protester taking a protest that you object to, disagree with, and pushing back against it by making fun of it. You can think of the people that counter-protest against Fred Phelps um, with signs that say, I have a sign. Hmm. That's a kind of parody. <laughs> it's a kind of parodic protest. 
the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are doing something a little bit different. Because on the one hand, there's parody, there's humor there, and this is, there have been a number of scholars that have pointed out that parody is an especially common and, and potent form of protest in LGBTQ communities. It's something we've seen for decades now. What the sisters are doing is they're also being very serious about being nuns. Every sister that I have ever asked, do you consider yourself a nun, has said yes. Or she said, well, I'm a sister because to me, nuns are people who are cloistered and I'm not cloistered, I work out in the world and I call people that do that sisters rather than nuns. So the idea is the same. They're very serious about being about being nuns, and they're engaging with the the idea of the nun in a humorous way that also pushes back against what they see as being very powerful homophobia, transphobia, and sexism in traditional Roman Catholicism. So who are the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? If you could just kind of back up on that for just a second to elaborate on who they actually are. Yeah. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are an order of, as you've already mentioned, self-titled queer nuns. They are international. They're active on four continents. Uh, They're not religiously affiliated. They are not celibate, although individual members may be. And individual members may be religious, may understand themselves as spiritual, but may also be atheist or agnostic. They've been around for... um, almost 40 years. They were started in 1979 in San Francisco, and they currently welcome members of all sexualities and all genders. It's a volunteer order, so it's not a full-time thing. They're not residential, although individual sisters may live together and they may get together to get in habit to go out and do their work. I'm curious if you have any um, suggestions for any listeners about where they can learn more um, in the meantime before your book comes out about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, because I think that topic will resonate with several people off the top of my head that I know listen to the show. Absolutely. So the first thing you can do is you can go to your favorite search engine and enter Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You can also find many houses on Facebook. Some very simple links um, include thesisters.org, which is how you get to the San Francisco house. But there are prominent houses with big uh, either websites or Facebook pages ranging across the U.S. Uh, There are several houses now in Canada. Just in case you have listeners who are curious beyond the U.S. borders, there's uh, a number of houses in Australia. Oh, and somebody's going to get offended because I'm going to leave a country out. So let's just say uh, the U.K. and um, much of Europe, particularly northern and western, but increasingly eastern as well, as well as a house in Uruguay. Cool. Uh, I do have listeners in Canada. I actually did my master's at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. So hi to my friends in Canada. And I lived and taught in the UK in uh, Surrey. So hello to my British friends as well. So what do you think that everyday citizens, so people driving to work every day, going to all their ordinary jobs, living their daily busy lives... Um, what can they gain from this work with regards to understanding religion and society? How does this work help explode people's notions of what religion can be? Gosh, I think I can answer that with a visual image. We don't usually think religion when we see a six foot two bearded person in 
a cocktail dress and platform boots with a cigarette dangling from her hand, wearing a tall coronet, the structure that Roman Catholic nuns um, have on their heads, with a long sequined veil, handing out condoms on a Saturday night. But in fact, for many Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, that's precisely what living out their religious commitments looks like. What I think is really interesting and, and is very challenging for a lot of people is to take seriously what religion means for people rather than saying, I know what religion is and you're not it. That's so interesting. So my students, I have 60 high school seniors every year, and we get together and we talk about absolutely everything under the sun. And every year, my students are curious about issues of sexual orientation in religion, and they always ask my guest speakers fascinating questions with regards to everything under the sun regarding LGBTQIA. So they wrestle with such issues and questions really hard, and it's admirable to watch them try to enunciate what they mean and where they are in the moment and how they're trying to expand what they think. So I know this book is uh, some years in your academic past, but I'm curious if you can talk about some of your findings and coming out in Christianity um, as well. Yeah, so that was a book that was researched in the late 1990s. It was published in 2003 that focused on the experiences of LGBTQ Christians, predominantly people who in one way or another were affiliated with two different congregations of the Metropolitan Community Church, which is a denomination that was founded in 1968 specifically to serve LGBTQ people. Of course, it welcomes all people, and it's probably worth noting that it serves LGBTQ people as they are, not serving them to try to make them stop being LGBTQ, but to help them understand from the perspective of the MCC that they are God's children, that God created them just as they are, and God wants them to live happy and fulfilling lives in whatever way that looks like for them. Um, I was really interested in how people navigate this line between two communities that are suspicious of each other. I had a number of the people that I interviewed for that book project tell me that they had a harder time coming out to their LGBTQ friends about being Christian than they did coming out to their Christian friends about even the ones that were straight and cisgender about being LGBTQ. So in a way, this is, um, it's very much about my experience with the people that I saw around me who were themselves struggling to figure out what religion meant for them, many of them coming, if not from being raised Christian, and some of them were, then coming from a sort of culturally Christian space where they kind of knew that what they understood of Christianity was that it didn't like them, that it was negative towards them as, as LGBTQ people. But um, at the same time, they didn't really know where else to go. No other religions spoke to them. And they still felt like maybe they had a connection with the sacred. So it was watching the people around me engage in those kinds of struggles, not going through them at all myself, and sort of wondering what's it like and why is Christianity so important that people would fight for it so hard instead of just walking away, um, that really led me into the research. So why didn't they walk away? 
like what did you find any a couple of important findings because god and the church are theirs just as much as they are anyone else's so what was really important for them is to is to say just because particular churches and particular leaders have chosen to understand Christianity in a way that's homophobic and transphobic and biphobic doesn't mean that I should lose contact with God, doesn't mean that I don't also have a right to the church, doesn't mean that I don't also have the right to call myself Catholic, Pentecostal, Evangelical, Baptist. Um, it's my church too. And that was very, very much where they were coming from. For many people, it came also from direct conversation or experience with God. People told me of being slain in the spirit and experiencing God holding them and reassuring them that they were exactly as God had made them. They were God's child. That's extraordinarily powerful. I talked with another man whose story I will never forget, who was raised by missionaries with a fundamentalist church. He prayed on his 21st birthday to God to help him know himself better, and God revealed to him as in response that he was gay. So he went to his concordance, for those people who aren't familiar with this, this is kind of an index to the Bible, and he looked up the relevant texts and he said, oh, well that's not a big deal. Okay, thanks God, I'm gay. I think that you probably just uh, obliterated several listeners' stereotypes that they may have about um, LGBTQ within Christianity, so thank you so much for that. Um, so how central is sexuality when studying religion? Are people missing a huge piece of the picture and the puzzle when thinking about religion and not considering issues of sexuality? Well, that's my field, so I'm going to say yes, it's absolutely central. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that something even more complicated is going on. I think that um, culturally, in the U.S. for sure, but also in a number of Western cultures, we have two different answers to the question, what's the relationship between sexuality and religion? And I'm, when I say this, I mean, these are our assumptions. I don't think these are a good reflection of reality. If we're talking about religions that we recognize as our own, the relationship is no. Sexuality says, please. Religion says no. Sexuality says, how about we do this? Religion says no. When we're talking about religions that we don't identify as our own, even if many practitioners of those religions are part of Western cultures, when they're identified as exotic religions, as other religions with a capital O, then the relationship between religion and sexuality is exotic. I don't think either one of those is a good representation of what's actually happening. Many religions deal with sexuality. No may be part of the answer because many religions play an important role in social structure. But yes is also part of the answer. So yes, both spouses are guaranteed equal rights to sexual pleasure in many interpretations of Islam. Yes, sex is a blessing on the Sabbath in many interpretations of Judaism. Yes, sex is blessed by God and you should have God present in the bedroom when you have sex with your spouse in many interpretations of evangelical Christianity. So there's a lot more, even when we're looking into official rules and how people play within them, there are, there's a lot more to talk about with religion and sexuality. But at the same time, 
we also get too stuck in understanding religion as being the official rules. And I'm interested in what happens when the official rules say no, and people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And it's all about grow. It seems like it's also about growing and adapting and changing over time. Um, I mean, it can be. I we know that religions change over time. I'm hesitating over over growing and adapting. Um, that's one way of thinking about it. But I I think those are both ideas that suggest that we're getting better and better all the time at what we do. It's a bit of a progress narrative, and I think that there too there's a more complicated story. So we've had periods of time in history when any one or all three of the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, have at at the very least looked the other way when it came to certain kinds of same-sex relationships, when it came to certain kinds of gender variants that today we might recognize as trans. Sometimes they've even had periods of time when same-sex relationships in certain settings have been celebrated. And then there have been other time periods when people like that have been burned at the stake. And it's that history that gave us the three-letter F word for a gay man, um, which is another word for a firebrand, something you would use to light a fire, terrible word to call a human being. So I think I don't want to put any kind of pattern on it. It's not cycles. It's not always growing or evolving or getting better, but it's shifting in, in complex ways. I tell my students often, that Occam's razor doesn't apply to human beings. The simplest answer is almost always not the right one when it comes to us. So who are some of your like intellectual role models? Whose work inspires you? Like, Who would you suggest that people also discover for themselves uh, in the world of religious studies or anything that springs to mind? Oh my goodness. Now I should have had a stack of books on my desk next to me so that I could just read down them Sorry. and tell you about people. No, that's that's fine. Um, I want to say right now that I will inevitably leave someone out. There are so incredibly many people to talk about. Um, the people that among the people that have most inspired me in my own work and writing are Mark Jordan, um, Anne Pellegrini, and Janet Jacobson. They all do really important work in queer and feminist studies in religion. But I've also been mentored by many other people whose work is in LGBTQ studies in religion, um, but not as directly in my area. There are amazing scholars who um, have graduated since I graduated and have been developing careers in the field. Uh, any, oh gosh, I could name so many from um, Nikki Young and Ashan Crawley to Heather White, Anthony Petro, and some newer folks who are not um, always recognized in religious studies, but are starting to do really groundbreaking work, such as Quoley Driscoll, who's done some really uh, powerful work raising questions around historiography in the aftermath of, of cultural and physical genocide, and how do we find queer stories when we can't even find native stories and have to read between the lines of colonial texts to do so. Great. It looks like I have a little bit of homework to do. Thank you for suggesting all those folks. I'm looking forward to it. So how do you like being a religious studies professor? What are some of your favorite parts of your job? 
working with the students. I love this. Um, teaching is in my blood. Um, I'm an academic brat. Some people are army brats. I'm an academic brat. Both of my parents are professors, now retired. Um, so is my brother, and I learned a lot of what I know from them. I love interacting with students. Um, I know there are some people that work at research universities that do it primarily for the research, but I did my PhD in order to teach, and I fell in love with my research as a form of social justice activism along the way. Um, I have the privilege of working just uh, since a little over a year ago at an institution that serves predominantly students of color and predominantly first-generation students. We're giving them a research university education, hopefully inspiring some of them to create their own paths, not following ours, in doing research of their own, but also in doing activism and leading their communities in other ways, um, and in just learning to approach the world and helping us and their classmates learn from them. So I have one more question. Uh, I'm curious if uh, you could think about our society in general right now, where we are as a nation, and think about how religion fits into that. So why do you think that studying about uh, all religions, not just religions that a, a person practices, why is studying all religion important for modern people now and as we move forward as a country? I think many of us in religious studies have started saying that religious studies is the ultimate field for what a wide range of professions are looking for nowadays that they call cultural competence. When you study religion as a human phenomenon, which is what religious studies does, as you know, it's very different from studying it for your own personal practice. You can set your personal practice aside. You don't have to lose it. You don't have to change your beliefs. You may, because we all change our beliefs over time as we learn and we grow. But we're trying to understand what is a particular religious worldview or religious practice like for the person who holds it, for the person who practices it. That is a radical connection, a radical form of understanding between human beings. So the idea is that I can take something that I fundamentally on a personal level believe is not true, that I may even find to be a horrifying belief, but I can understand it so deeply that I can completely get why someone would make a decision to do a particular action, to follow a particular belief or a particular course of practice based on that understanding. If we can have that kind of understanding, we can communicate with each other better, we can work better for justice for everyone, and on a very practical level, religious studies majors go on to do almost everything under the sun. I've had double majors in astronomy, I've had double majors in pre-med, a number of religious studies majors that I've known that have gone on to med school and who are going to make great doctors because of their ability to engage across a wide variety of cultures. I've seen religious studies majors go on to law school, go into business, go into nonprofits, go on to Capitol Hill and do politics. Madeleine Albright herself has said that we need more and better religious studies for the diplomats of the future and also for the citizens of the future. That is such a fantastic way to end our conversation today. And uh, I, I've, you've given me so much to think about. 
And uh, Dr. Wilcox, I just wanted to tell you that I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for spending this half an hour with me and saying yes to my invitation to come on the Classical Ideas podcast. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope your listeners pick up something that makes them think a little bit harder about religion. Thank you so much. The Classical Ideas podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Stravick. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.